are soaked to the bone. The wind is howling. A rock slide blocks your path. You find yourself knocking on the door of a decaying estate hidden deep in the shadows. Strangers greet you, each odder than the next. There are no beds, but you might stay if you can keep awake the whole night through. The rain beats the windows on and on. They say a flood might wash the whole house away, and you with it. As the hours crawl by with no dawn in sight, you learn this house has secrets. A family stunted by sin, guests ravaged by loss, an ancient noble kept alive only by spite, the tortured ghost of a lovely young girl, a demented prisoner who's never left his nursery, and the blandest, coldest boiled potato you have ever had in your life. Light a candle, or two or three, because this week we're discussing the original Haunted Mansion horror, James Whale's 1932 gothic masterpiece, The Old Dark House. yesterday at school and waiting to enter the train through the doors I was leaving from with someone wearing double denim, denim jacket, jeans, and a full face plastic wolf mask. And it was a furry thing, I guess. But when you see furries, normally they, they've got like the tails or the full costume. This was just a hard shell wolf mask. And it was terrifying. And I said before, it was like seeing an omen of your own death. Something's wrong here and I'm going to die. I just the concept of a hard mask is that like is that yeah, part of furry culture aren't they I don't know that was the weird thing about it that's why it was like slightly more unsettling than just seeing normal furry shit in the wild it was like you're just wearing this hard mask it's not comfortable no and it's also not like it's not like Halloween or anything it's like no there's no context for this like I'm, I'm going to fucking like intro to law and society in my hard wolf mask i don't know it was i mean i made it home safe but who knows like something could happen still i don't know that's uh my segue into today's spooky halloween episode oh yeah well for today's spooky halloween episode we are going to be discussing the spookiest thing of all which is the elderly <laughs> <laughs> they're very scary and um, you don't want to become one, basically, I believe, is the message of the old dark house. That's James Wan's philosophy as well. So Exactly. I mean, and James Wan, <laughs> James Whale, very close. Wake up, America. Wake up, sheeple. Is there anybody there since this bad Knock again, louder. I should have thought that was loud enough to wake the dead. 
That's an idea. What is? Wouldn't it be dramatic? Supposing the people inside were dead, all stretched out with the lights quietly burning about them. I'm sure it would be very amusing. I'm sure I could do with a drink. If people have to be soaked, they should be soaked inside, not out. So there are obviously a lot of ways in which you could tackle this particular movie. Uh, I think there are a lot of ways you could tackle James Whale in general. It's fertile ground. So I think I'm going to I'm going to do what all the greats do and begin at the beginning. And I'm going to go back to James Whale's early life. He was born in the industrial town of Dudley in England's West Midlands in 1899. He was the sensitive and artistically inclined child of a working class family and was thus exposed to bleak, backbreaking poverty from an early age, of which he was very self-conscious his entire adult life. His mother was a religious fanatic, allegedly, which no doubt informed the sacrilegious and some might say heretical tone underlying the old dark house and which is particularly potent in Bride of Frankenstein. He was a second lieutenant in World War One. He was captured by the Germans in Belgium and more or less spent the entirety of the war in a POW camp where he took up a side hustle, which is very millennial of him, <laughs> and that was bilking rich guys in card games by pretending to have money himself. <laughs> and so once the war was over and he got back to England, he cashed all their checks and he headed to London where he vacillated between work as a newspaper cartoonist and not work on the stage where he sought to actualize the wealthy, aesthetic, cool dude image he cultivated while a prisoner of war. And during those early years in the British theater, he acted, designed sets, and assisted directors before transitioning into directing full-time in the late 20s. Yeah, I was just, how do you cultivate a cool guy, rich image while you're a prisoner of war? I guess it's because everybody probably smelled like shit and was dressed poorly, <laughs> so I guess it was easier. And you could probably just, like, you have a lot of time to come up with, like, stories, you know, about, like, grandmama's estate and the family jewels and stuff. There's not a lot of room to, like, get your fashion game up in a fucking prisoner of war camp. But anyway. Yeah. And I love the idea that he's 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 playing with chips that he, he absolutely doesn't have. Like, what would have happened if he'd lost those card games? I mean, probably not much. Probably not much. <laughs> probably not much. Maybe they would have turned him over to the Germans again after, <laughs> after they got out. And they went, hey, this guy. So Whale experienced a number of disappointments on the British stage as a director. He had a number of flops. But then he got lucky with the great war drama Journey's End, which in the lead role of the tortured drunkard Captain Stanhope was starring a young actor much beloved by this podcast named Laurence Olivier. <laughs> what ended up happening, though, was that Olivier got a better offer. So he bounced pretty much immediately. And Whale found himself without a star. So Whale didn't have a lead and the play was going to open. So out of nowhere emerges this, quote, ragged and agonized young actor who is himself an alcoholic with a dark mental state named Colin Clive. And Whale and Clive hit it off immediately. He sees in Clive something that Clive does not believe he himself possesses. He believes in him. You know, there's that big, you know, Rudy cheering moment where now they have a hit show and their genius is, you know, validated. And since the show is so successful, they end up taking it to Broadway, where it is then optioned by Tiffany Stahl Productions, which was one of the leading independents in the early studio era. So while they're in Hollywood waiting for this work on the film adaptation of Journey's End to Start. Will kind of roams a little bit, picking up projects here and there, and he works on a tiny 
insignificant, not at all well-known little picture called Hell's Angels. He's responsible for much of what is really beautiful and striking in that movie, including the screen debut of Gene Harlow, but Howard Hughes' ego would never let you know that. So, yeah. And it was ultimately Tiffany's insolvency that brought Whale to Universal to direct another World War I picture, the original version of Waterloo Bridge. Boosted by the film's success, Whale combed through Universal's literary properties seeking another project, and he happened to choose one on which preliminary work was already underway. But Carl Lemley Jr., however, was so pleased with Whale's work on Waterloo Bridge that he canned the project's existing director, Robert Florey, and allowed Whale to recast the lead. Reports differ as to whether Whale was really aware that he was effectively signing Flory's death warrant. Flory certainly remained bitter about having been usurped for the rest of his life. So in 1931, Whale commenced shooting a script adapted from a play by Peggy Webling, which was itself adapted from the novel Pushed by Sapphire. (laughs) Uh, Adapted from the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And you know the story from there. It's hard to describe in our era of lukewarm blockbusters that make a whole lot of money but achieve very little, like on a cultural level, the stratosphere into which Whale was launched by the success of Frankenstein. He became the ace of Universal, so-called, because he was effectively thrust into the position of the studio star director overnight. And we might uncharitably suggest that might be because Universal was too cheap to poach any other talent from any of the other studios. Because... As we've discussed many times in this podcast, Universal is throughout its history defined by extremely, extremely stingy pocketbooks, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. They open only with excessive effort. Yeah, I'd say that. They're just not, they don't want to spend money, but they like to earn money. So, I mean, that's the same for any studio. But like with Universal, it's particularly stark. It's like, just fucking shill out a little bit more money and then you'll see more return. So what ended up happening at Universal in the early 30s, though, was that because they were so cheap and they weren't willing to hire anyone else, Whale basically got to do whatever he wanted. And that is part of the reason why historians explain the uniqueness of Whale's Universal horror movies, particularly something like Bride of Frankenstein, which could not be made anywhere else. Um, I read a really interesting essay earlier today uh, that was written in the 60s discussing where Whale is in the context of horror in the 1930s. And part of that is the idea that he would have maybe enjoyed, he certainly would have enjoyed better access to kind of all the commercial materialist trappings of Hollywood filmmaking if he'd been somewhere like Metro, but that he never would have had the same level of creative freedom that he had at Universal because they had no other choice. (laughs) (laughs) It sort of calls to mind like uh, John Carpenter when we were talking about The Thing and his experience after The Thing failed and he had to make do with not necessarily the most uh, money. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. And Universal kind of ends up in a position where they depend on Whale in a way that no other studio depends really on a, on a director, I don't think, throughout throughout Hollywood history. I don't, I don't think there is such a situation. You'll have studios that depend upon stars, you know, in mm-hmm. the way that MGM one day is going to depend on Eleanor Powell and Fox is going to p- depend on Shirley Temple or, or whatever. But there's not that sense of a director being the face of the studio 
in the way that Whale was the face of Universal. And now, of course, many years on, everybody wants to claim Hitchcock is their face. But um, I guess now Hitchcock <laughs> is the face of Universal Spielberg, I, I guess. But in the studio era, in the early part of the studio era, or specifically the early part of the sound era, this is where Whale excels. People were probably a little jealous of that, particularly Robert Flory, who, you know, almost became the man who made Frankenstein. Snooze you lose, bitch. See, Flory also um, had his vision of the film was was fairly different. His 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 supporters have, I guess, always claimed that Whale kind of just ripped off the existing ideas, which we know isn't true because Whale, being a very visual person, had designs, you know, Whale had... Also, Whale would constantly divert from scripts. That was another thing for which Whale became famous. He did not believe in hewing to what was on the page. So it's very difficult to make that argument. However, it is interesting to envision what it would have been like with Flory's choice of a leading man, who was Bella Lugosi. Mm. And Lugosi, of course, was very excited to be dropped from the project because he didn't want to play Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked out for Karloff, who, of course, was mostly doing, like, you know, little, like, walk-on two-line parts at that point and needed money. It, it ended up being a success for everyone involved except for Robert Flory. Whale, again, having his pick of material, was intrigued by Benighted a black comedy by the British writer J.B. Presley that used a decrepit manor house as a metaphor for the defeatist mood that overtook post-war England. The characters in Benighted have been devastated by war, by social stratification, by the meaningless transactionality of modern relationships. Nothing is worth the effort. Everything is monotonous and terrible. Everyone is effectively waiting for something to jolt them out of their apathy before they die. Miss Duquesne. Yes? What does your intuition tell you about me? Quite a lot. Hmm, that frightens me a good deal. What does it tell you? It tells me... Well, it's not very interesting anyway. Oh, yes, it is. Let's have it. Well, it sounds silly, but... I think he doesn't quite fit into these times. You know, factories and cheap advertising and money-grubbing and... Well, what I mean is... Bill here's all right with these things. But they make Mr. Pendrell a kind of fish out of water. You should be flattered, Mr. Pendrell. No, I'm not flattered. You see, I've not much sympathy with fish out of water, although I happen to be one myself. My trouble is, I don't think enough things are worthwhile. Now, Sir William here would put tremendous energy into anything to make even a few pounds. Now, I don't think it's worth it. And what ends up jolting them out of that apathy is this deranged family. <laughs> living in a very creepy rural estate that may or may not be swept away by a flood in about 15 seconds. People, I have never read the novel. Um, I could not get my hands on it, shockingly enough. Uh, but people who have, have said that it's fairly melodramatic. It has like tinges of comedy, but that's not, I guess, really what Priestley was, was known for. Um, he was known for more like satires, whereas this is like a little bit out of his wheelhouse, but it's very fitting for Whale and, and the kind of movies that Whale was excited to make. And he takes all this kind of heady intellectual material and he directs it in the absolute gayest way possible. <laughs> uh, a lot has been made, of course, about Whale's sexuality. Most people, you ask them, name a gay old Hollywood director. And when they go, what? How'd you get in my house? After that... <laughs> They probably come up with James Whale. Um, Whale was also noted by me personally for working with a number of gay or bisexual actors. They're in virtually every movie he made. There's Charles Lawton here in The Old Dark House. There's Vincent Price in Green Hell. 
Nils Asther and by Candlelight, my beloved David Manners in Journey's End, <laughs> Edward Everett Horton in The Great Garrick, Richard Cromwell in Spring Byington in The Road Back, and of course, Gavin Gordon and Ernest Thesiger in Bride of Frankenstein. And the jury is out on Colin Clive, who played Dr. Frankenstein, but you know, probably. Thesiger is, of course, the most palpably gay whale collaborator. His performances in Bride of Frankenstein and here in The Old Dark House are woven into the fabric of camp culture. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there is no moment in a studio era picture as immediately identifiable to the modern viewer as gay humor as the dinner sequence in the old dark house. This is a famous moment from the movie, and this was not anyone's idea but James Wales. And Gloria Stewart recalls Thesiger picking up the potato, and then and then Wales like, hold on, hold on, say it this way. Have a potato. <laughs> Have a potato. Thank you. Have a potato. Thank you. I should love a potato. And it's just one of those like little Walesian touches that elevates Old Dark House to just a whole other level. It's so funny. It's so funny. It's very funny. I guess it's it's funny, but it also completely like breaks the the mood. Like it's just a nice diversion from the mood that's been building up the whole time. I mean, there's it's a there's a bit of camp, and it's like there's bits that to a modern viewer would be funny before this point, but like, and then and the whole movie is like that too. Yeah. It's got those moments of like weird levity that come out of nowhere when you're yeah. really kind of slogging through these sort of shadowy hallways, right? And then suddenly you've got like have a potato and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Raymond Durnot, I'm going to mispronounce that. I think he's French, but whatever. Uh, the film critic, uh, he wrote about Bride of Frankenstein, and he emphasized that none of the humor is unintentional. Every joke is a sick joke. And I think that's like doubly true of The Old Dark House. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Because all of the, the double entendres are there, and Whale addresses it with this very knowing, um, guiding hand. Whale had a really interesting directing style. He directed in camera, which for the uninitiated means that he did not shoot any extraneous footage. So rather than shooting a scene from multiple angles or multiple perspectives or with different kinds of dialogue, he only shot what he was going to use because he didn't want the editor to fuck it up. Hitchcock edited in camera. Um, a lot of the greats edited in camera. But Whale would definitely have been at least within again the context of the sound era someone who was one of the one of the first i can think of to do that because of all the technical kind of malfeasances that can occur while shooting in early talkies that's a very dangerous way to go about working mm, <laughs> not yeah. having any extra footage but i'm sure universal loved it because they were like because they were so cheap exactly yeah. they were so cheap to make yeah they bought the rights to the old dark house or benighted um it was published in the united states as the old dark house he did not come up with that title in january of 1932 and the real like first couple drafts of the script had been submitted by i believe march of 1932 and the movie was finished by may of 1932 wow yeah that was another great thing that, that will had the ability to work very quickly but that was because he again was a very visual thinker and he had the whole movie planned out for himself ahead of time 
one aspect of this movie that I thought was really interesting and something I had absolutely never thought of before was brought up by one of my favorite film historians, William K. Everson. Uh, he has multiple books on the history of horror, and he, he's an expert on silent film. I always like to talk about cultural context that's been stripped away by the passage of time, and William K. Everson brought up an interesting one in terms of how an audience would have first approached this movie. When the travelers first reach the femme house, Whale opts for an extended shot so that there's enough time for theater goers to applaud Boris Karloff's arrival on screen. Oh, wow. So they don't miss any subsequent dialogue. Wow. I never would have thought of that. That, like, SNL style is is really interesting and not something, again, I had ever thought of before. But, of of course, within the context of this, because, again, it's it's 1932, seeing Boris Karloff is still quite a novelty. And when you think about the, the context of the films, especially films at this time, the only place they were seen was at the cinema. They weren't exactly. seen anywhere else. And, like, the, there was no concept of seeing them anywhere else so it's like it's really interesting to think about films these days films are made to be rewatchable they aren't made strictly for the screen and it's not obvious when you're watching it that that's what is happening it's not it's 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 very well integrated into the movie and nobody else gets that moment because who the fuck cares about melvin douglas um <laughs> besides us there would be a pause break if we made this movie but for melly d <laughs> for melly d uh, so it's also, I think, when you're talking about technical work in, in Wells' films, Whale, again, you have to remember that he's somebody who, as we established earlier, um, he had been an art director. He'd been a set designer. He had been uh, a, a stage director. He'd been an assistant director. He had he had approached filmmaking from all these different angles through his experience in the theater. And you definitely get the sense when you're watching these movies, even if you're not necessarily aware of that, that he has... That again, he's literate in all these different forms of filmmaking. The way he handles actors, of course, very distinct. But one of the things that I think is really cool about James Whale, and very particular to the environment in which he's working, is that Universal actually, in addition to recycling its sets between movies, would rent out their sets to independent production companies for like poverty row B pictures. And these include whale sets. But you'll never watch one of those movies and truly recognize a set from a whale movie because he never shot them the way that they looked in real life, if you know what I'm saying. Like, mm-hmm. they, they're never even remotely similar. And that's a testament to the power of his filmmaking that he can take something so mundane as kind of, you know, a plaster and cardboard set and he can turn it into something that truly plays with all the the optical options that are possible within human vision. Oftentimes in a whale movie, he he did work with oversized sets. There are a lot of very tall sets. He really likes tall sets. Uh, Frankenstein's Laboratory is, is a good example of that. But things are always shot with a very odd sense of perspective, kind of dreamlike. And German expressionism is probably responsible for part of that. But I think much of it is just that visual acuity that Whale brought to each and every production. Whale is one of those really interesting horror directors in that he actually didn't really make that many horror movies. He made as many war movies as he made horror movies. And he made more like standard studio fare, like comedy, drama, bullshit movies than he he did either of those genres. But through all of them, there is that thread of playfulness and exploration that we oftentimes associate exclusively with the horror movie in classic Hollywood because it's such a a perfect ideal distillation of 
science and of technology and of excessive wealth behind the studio system. And it just makes a really effective kind of like compounding of all the things that a movie can be at a time like 1932. It's interesting to me when you think about it that a horror film really is, I mean, it's not looked upon as uh, like by the Academy as something worth merit. But when you think about it, horror film has always been an outlet for creative expression and experimental filmmaking in a way that other films aren't necessarily. Um, So like, yes, there's experimental drama and there's experimental like action films and all of that. But I think horror as a genre developed in a way that you were able to experiment a lot more freely than you would have been if you were making like a a comedy or something like that. Mm -hmm. It just really frustrates me that people continue to look down on horror as something that's not worthy of um, accolades and things like that. Yeah, it's frustrating. And I guess with James Whale, he, yeah, he made a myriad of other genre pictures, but his style, I guess, is a lot more present in the public consciousness in his horror films because you can immediately identify a James Whale horror film. Well, part of that, I think, is that he really rose to the occasion of limited means at Universal. And he did kind of briefly, like, have forays into other studios, you know. But it's really a a great marriage, I think, of director and opportunity and environment at Universal that allowed him to be as thematically and stylistically complex and layered and outrageous as he wanted to be. It kind of kind of reminds me of the situation that F.W. Murnau had at Fox, where he enjoyed creative responsibility and opportunity until he didn't. And, spoiler alert, but when Whale effectively gets barred from the universal lot, it's that same sense of, of very rapid decline. Of course, Murnau's was also precipitated by the fact that, again, he got smashed to pieces in a car crash. But um, so, you know, you can't uh, be mad about people recutting City Girl when you're dead. But um, (laughs) Whale lived long enough to see the studio system betray him, you know, which I think is also kind of the poetry of a horror film. And that's not really the poetry of like a romantic comedy. And a lot of directors have that same situation where they help build a studio and then the studio turns its back on them. Mm. But Whale really, again, he was the ace of Universal. He's he you could maybe argue saved universal many people have and he was he is without a doubt responsible for turning universal into the global power that it is today the mega corporation that it is was really built on his very fashionable very queer back and i don't think universal ever really paid him paid him the tribute that he deserved after he left it was not on on positive terms and it was it, it, it's really kind of a black mark on the history of universal which has many black marks on its yeah, history I was gonna so. say, like they, they don't have a reputation for treating people well so no we're gonna get barred from fucking universal studios we are and you know what they should be nicer to me and to james whale if they want <laughs> if they want your patronage they feel on my patronage with my free tickets. So, uh, again, Whale had been a dialogue director. He he 
had a lot of experience working with actors. He, having been an actor himself, he loved to create quirky little moments for his actors. And these are all over the old dark house. Gloria Stewart recalled specifically, there's the Annunciation and Have a Potato. There's Thessager throwing the flowers into the fireplace, which is one of my That's favorite That's my favorite. Yes. Yeah, I love that. My sister was on the point of arranging these flowers. Uh, Gloria's shadow puppet sequence and her escape from Karloff. Those were all Whale's ideas. Those were not those of the screenwriters, R.C. Sheriff, who was the playwright behind Journey's End, and Ben Levy, who was uh, future Mr. Constance Cummings. Gloria, many years later, when she was stumping for Titanic, said, quote, That scene where I did those little silhouettes I did with my hands on the walls, James. And so was that other scene where I'm walking through the hall in that white gown with Karloff coming after me. I said to him, I don't understand. Everyone else is wet and muddy and hasn't changed for dinner. And I come in in a Jean Harlow bias cut silk gown with earrings and pearls. What is this? Doesn't make sense. And he said, oh, yes. When Boris chases you through the halls and into the living room, I want you to appear like a white flame. Okay, James. It was ridiculous, but for the tone of that film, it was just right. Good for you, Mrs. Waverton. You make it look like a party. Thank you. So he was very clear in what he wanted and what he expected, but always in a very positive and very loving way in the environment with the actors. But I remember while we were watching, we're like, it's always so funny to see her running around in this completely impractical evening gown. <laughs> it's ridiculous because it like the weather is so bad outside and the house must be so drafty and so cold. And then she's there in this backless, you know, bias cut gown. And it's like, who would do this? She would be covered in goose goosebumps freezing her way through those potatoes exactly and that's that delicious like touch of absurdity it goes back to the idea that all this is kind of like dreamlike and like we're going to talk spoiler alert again about night of the hunter the idea of everything kind of being like inside a nightmare like the inconsistent internal logic or illogic of a nightmare you know like yeah. part yeah. of the the conceit behind the old dark house is at the end of the movie once the sun breaks the rain stops Everything is fine. Oh, it was like it was like it's all just a bad dream and everything's gone away. Goodbye. 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 So happy to have met you. You've got like the birds tweeting and yeah, the yeah. birds are tweeting. Now Melly D can bone down with Lillian Bond. Everything's cool. So for me, it, it works very well. These again, these moments of absurdity and people might say stupidity if they didn't really understand what Whale was going for. Because again, he's he's playing with the idea of what frightens us and why we're frightened by things. And multiple critics have said over the years that part of what makes this movie so good is the idea that Thesiger is always kind of like seems contemptuous of us as an audience. Like he's directly making fun of us for being so appalled by his weird house and his nasty family. Yeah, I was just going to say too that on a purely like aesthetic level, it works so well that dress. Oh, it's great. It's a great it's, dress. It's gorgeous. There are so many gorgeous shots. Like um what comes to mind for me is again when she's in the hallway, she comes out of uh, Rebecca's room and just in that like dark hallway, she's this like slip of light and you've got the curtains blowing and like uh, is also the uh, the the shadow puppet scene stuff like that. It just it works so well as just visually. It's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. So the dress makes no sense, but it does yes. logically. It makes no sense, but visually it makes a lot of sense. There are, there are so many touches in this movie that are kind of kind of odd, but at the same time work. Like I I know that some some people were not like they were a little thrown by the casting of Melly, um, because the character is British. 
But again, it works because Melly's very suave, as the British believe themselves to be. And and he's also got those smoky eye on. Yes. He's really, uh... He's got that smoky eye on. Raymond Massey's Canadian. He's also supposed to be British. You know, the whole, I mean, Elspeth Dudgeon is a woman. She's in drag as an ancient 102-year-old man. You know, all of that. I would like to tell you all about it, but there may not be time. You see, when you're as old as I am, at any minute you may just die. (laughs) The casting of this movie works because the casting is approached almost like a play, Mm. you know, like it's like it's all stagecraft. I think it was also William K. Everson. Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna write down everything in my show notes. But who who addressed the idea that the movie is just really a set of anticlimaxes? Everything you think is going to be a scare isn't a scare. Mm. And once a real scare arises, it's so um, unprecedented or so unheralded that you don't really realize it's scary at first. Mm. Like this, the he's. One of the ones that specifically is mentioned is when you first see Saul's hand coming down after he's been let out of his room, and then it cuts away, and there's like a minute or two where you forget it's there, yeah. and then it slides further down the banister. Like, it's just hanging out there for like ages, because something else happens, and mm-hmm. everyone's attention is directed that way, and then Saul's hand is still there, still like being creepy. Another scene that, that that was pointed out is in which Rebecca is going off on that whole crazy rant uh, about the fate of her sister, her, her slutty, slutty sister. My sister Rachel had this room once. She died when she was 21. She was a wicked one. Handsome and wild as a hawk. All the young men used to follow her about with her red lips and her big eyes and her white neck. But that didn't save her. She fell off her horse, hunting. Hurt her spine. On this bed she lay, month after month. Many of the time I've sat here listening to her screaming. Oh, dreadful. She used to cry out to me to kill her, but I'd tell her to turn to the Lord. But she didn't. She was godless to the last. Well, I'd better change my wet thing. They were all godless here. They used to bring their women here. Brazen, lulling creatures in silks and satins. They fill the house with laughter and sin, laughter and sin. If I ever went down among them, my own father and brothers, they would tell me to go away and pray. They wouldn't tell Rachel to go away and pray. <laughs> and I prayed and left them with their lustful red and white women. My father's still alive. He's upstairs. He's very old. Oh, is he? He's 102. Very old, isn't it? He's a wicked, blasphemous old man. You're wicked too. Young and handsome, silly and wicked. You think of nothing but your long, straight legs and your white body and how to please your man. You revel in the joys of fleshly love, don't you? That's fine stuff, but it'll rot. That's finer stuff still, but it'll rot too in time. Don't! How dare you! And then she's talking about how, like, you know, fleshy love and everything and how it's doomed and how, you know, Gloria Stewart's character will rot too and blah, 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 blah. And then, like, she stops and she just looks at herself in the mirror and then she fixes her hair a little bit. Yep. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is part of like the, again, those, those whale touches that end up being lampooned and young Frankenstein. And then people who are not intimately familiar with whales works think of these as being like a Mel Brooks innovation. And it's like Mel Brooks, because he's a genius, grasps what makes a James Whale movie a James Whale movie. And there are aspects of Young Frankenstein that are really just deliberately lifted from that, those Frankenstein movies, like verbatim. Like, if you've ever seen Son of Frankenstein from 1939, the character in Young Frankenstein, who um, has the wooden arm that he puts his um, his darts in, like, that's obviously, that's not a James Whale movie, but it's, it's, it's following the same, like, James Whale pattern, you know, established the tone that's established. And that is, that is a character in Son of Frankenstein. So that was an example of Universal obviously identifying what made those movies remarkable and trying to figure out how the fuck they could continue the series without it becoming a box office drain in the way that, you know, it ultimately ended up becoming after they ran the Frankenstein formula into the ground in the 1940s. Uh, so May Clark described Whale as having his own wonderful way of working with actors, which ensured that shooting Frankenstein was, these are all adjectives that she uses, pleasant and understanding and family-like without being gooey. So things were not like treacly and overly sentimental, but there was very much a sense of, of bonding and mutual respect professionally that was there on a on a whale picture which again as we've established is not necessarily the norm on a lot of lots at a lot of studios mm. and i'm guessing is partially because whale doesn't want to have sexual relations with any of the actors in this movie because once anyone starts to get horny they can't direct a movie i think really i think it was getting horny that killed hitchcock <laughs> you know i think <laughs> being rebuffed you know, with the whole, like, tippy thing and then, like, Vera Miles. I think that drove Hitchcock off the edge. And then he started making torn curtain and stuff like that. I think, <laughs> I think that was it. I think the horniness killed Hitchcock, the auteur. Too horny. Too horny to live. <laughs> yeah, Will strikes me as being a remarkably unhorny guy, which is, which is actually very cool. And I respect him for that. <laughs> Are we positing that possibly asexual? I don't know if I would say that. I just feel like, well, we not, no, no, because. Um, I'm just trying to get to an aphobless joke. That's. Oh. oh, God damn it. I was, I was like, well, I was going to be like, well, you know, and then he had this, he had this, this, this French chauffeur whom he was there, you know. <laughs> That's why he was kicked out of Universal. He's on that aphobless. He's on the Shut up. So. <laughs> Whale's actually, Whale's personal relationships are really interesting. Um, he, his longest term personal relationship was with the producer David Lewis, who worked over at MGM. And Lewis, at the end of Whale's tenure at Universal, tried to get him over to MGM. And that did not end up working. Nobody who goes to MGM does well. Let's no. just, like, Buster went to MGM and they fucking killed him, so. I know. Who's the only, I mean, I was a little bit saying Nora Bashir, but I was like, well, you know, she allied herself with Irving Thalberg, so that was a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, it kind of helps. Oh my God. <laughs> kind of helps a little bit. No, he wanted, Lewis wanted Whale to direct uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and that did not end up happening, obviously, which would have been a really interesting idea. He definitely had a really, really interesting relationship with Lewis, who's also kind of a tragic Hollywood figure. Lewis lost virtually all of his money producing Rain Tree County. Oh, and ouch. Um, basically ended up dying in extremely uh, 
downsized circumstances from that which he was accustomed at this point in time when he was with uh, Whale. And so that's kind of a, a cautionary tale about what ends up happening when you kind of leave the safe nest of the studio system and you decide, oh, I'm going to be a big independent boy. And then Monty Cliff's face gets smashed in. Yeah. And then Lewis may or may not have ended up committing suicide. So that's kind of a bleak story. Yeah, kind of. Kind of kind bleak. Of, a little bit. A little bit. So the casting of this movie was interesting. You know, there were there were a couple givens. Obviously, Universal was going to put Karloff in. I mean, that was... I mean, if they're pausing for his applause, then yeah, they're going to put Karloff in. Exactly. And Will liked Karloff and liked uh, working with him. So that, was, that wasn't a problem. But he also got to do a little bit of weird James Whale shit in some of the smaller parts. So Eva Moore, who plays the oddball sister Rebecca, actually did not come to Hollywood from England to further her own career, but that of her daughter, Jill Esmond, who was then married to another friend of the pod, Lawrence Olivier again. Ugh. Oh, Jesus. God, this fucking... Ah. <laughs> uh. I just have one request. It's just that we never cover a Lawrence Olivier film. Is there a single Lawrence Olivier movie I like? Did he ever make a movie? Um, I don't recall any movie he was ever in, actually. I don't think... I, don't, I think he's a fake movie star. I literally, the only movie I can think of is Spartacus. I love Spartacus, but Laurence Olivier, to me, is a non-factor in Spartacus. He's not, <laughs> like, he's not there. He's a non-entity. He's a non-entity. But, you know, he's not a non-entity in doing blackface. <laughs> he's a major entity in the history of doing blackface long after virtually everyone else in show business has abandoned the practice. It's just how Shakespeare would have wanted. I mean, that is true. So, uh, <laughs> Ernest Thesiger, who plays Rebecca's brother Horace Femme, was an old friend of Wales from the London stage, brought over specifically for the role, and in kind of a weird turn, but just to indicate there are only five people in all of England, Moore and Thesiger had worked together as early as 1909. So we got some history here. A whole lot of history, as Girls Aloud would say. Did you hear what he said? There's a landslide and floods. The lake has burst its banks. We're trapped. We're trapped. We've got to go. You hear? We've got to go. And you're afraid, Horace. You're afraid, aren't you? You don't believe in God, and yet you're afraid to die. You've seen his anger in the sky, and you've heard him in the night. And you're afraid. 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 Where's your mocking now? You may well be afraid. Your time will come. But it hasn't come yet. This house is safe. I know it better than you. Then Rebecca and Horace's father, Sir Roderick Femme, was played famously by Elspeth Dudgeon, an older actress, not an actor, who had previously played one of the witches in a 1924 production of Macbeth, for which Whale had served as stage director. So in this aspect, he got to work with a lot of people he was very comfortable with already, mm -hmm. um, including his old pal, Charles Lawton, whom he entreated to come to Hollywood by talking about how effectively gold comes out of your hair. You just shake <laughs> your hair and gold comes out. And Elsa Lanchester was like, well, Jimmy did love money. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, Elsa also believed that part of the tragedy of Will's life and the reason why everything fell apart was because he was engaged to a, a woman whose name is not coming to mind right now, who um, he later utilized to do some costume sketches and stuff for him, who ultimately like kind of like broke off the engagement. And Elsa was like, Jimmy never got over it. I don't think, and I, I don't think he cared. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> uh, nothing indicates to me that, because especially because he's already living with 
David Lewis at that time. So the fact that Elsa is being like a little bit purposely obtuse with this particular romance is <laughs> take from that what you will, knowing as as everyone I'm sure does Elsa Lanchester and Charles Lawton's personal relationship, which was very complicated. She wants to set a couch on fire. I feel like Elsa's a little bit of a an odd duck. Elsa's definitely an odd duck. I read a, a, when I was working. I okay. I know. I said wouldn't bring up the puppets <laughs> but while i was working on my capstone paper for my history degree which was on the turnabout theater in west hollywood i stumbled across kind of an interesting theory that elsa had this thing which of course probably came out of the fact that it wasn't until after she and Charles got married that he dropped the whole, like, oops, well, you know, I'm going to continue sleeping with men bomb. That Elsa <laughs> had this thing about trying to convert gay men, which might explain some of the extreme, like, personal closeness that she pursued with with a lot of gay men. Um, mm, right. In this context, being Foreman Brown of the Turnabout Theater. Because Foreman was in a stable, stable uh, relationship with one of the other members of the Turnabout Theater, and that he and Elsa got very close, and that Elsa may or may not have had some ambitions that were right. unmet. <laughs> so um, anyway, Elsa's really interesting, but the, the couch thing, Elsa at one time lit a couch on fire when she found out that Charles fucked a guy on it. And she was very defensive of Charles, and obviously very defensive of Whale. So, you know, you understand where that's going, but I definitely think that this was part of Elsa's psychology that she probably should have seen a therapist about. Anyway, <laughs> so this, of course, is Charles's first American movie. It's not going to launch him to, you know, stardom exactly. That's going to have to wait for uh, Private Life of Henry VIII. But it is really a very interesting performance. And one of the few times in which you get to see Lawton playing kind of like a working class British character. Yeah. Which is quite contrary to his screen persona. Mm. I think he's really, really good in this too. Like he's he's got this sort of strain of melancholy that obviously, you know, the, the speech about his, his dead wife and stuff. Oh yes, you envy me all right, but you don't admire me. <laughs> well, I, I don't admire myself so much. I know that money making isn't everything. But let me tell you something. I'm a young man, see? Married to a Manchester girl, pretty as paint. The only thing in the world I care about. Well, she dies. It's this way. My directors give a party. They ask us. Red letter day for us, I can tell you. <laughs> I buy me first dress suit, and Lucy has a new frock. A cotton frock. It seems that Lucy didn't go too well at that party, especially with the women. They snubbed her. Nothing definite, you know. Just didn't think the cotton frock was good enough. Well, Lucy worries about it. Gets it into her head that she's going to hold me back. Well, you may not believe it, but I know that's what killed her. That's what started me making money. I swore I'd smash those fellows and their wives who wouldn't give my Lucy a kind word. <laughs> and I have smashed them, at least most of them. Once you've started making money, it's hard to stop. Especially if you're like me. There isn't much else you're good at. It shows up more often than I, I necessarily notice, noticed the first few times I watched this movie. Like This is one of my favorite Lawton performances. My other favorite Lawton performance is Ruggles of Red Gap. And um, I really love that particular Lawton, which is like harried and put upon. And 
a little sassy, a little wounded, you know? Yeah. Um, but he's trucking. He's trucking. And I also very much identify with one of the undercurrents in this movie, but which is most accurately and strongly expressed in Lawton's character, which is revenge. He is entirely driven by and motivated by revenge, you know? He, yeah, he's just spiteful. He's <laughs> just very spiteful. He wants everyone to pay for effectively stressing his wife out to the degree that she you know explodes or whatever happens spontaneously combusts i don't know i can relate to that feeling of just severe anxiety that fucks you over like yeah to the point where you die but um (laughs) yes exactly and there is very much like an an element of um of, of class anxiety in this movie one very interesting study that i read touched upon the idea that there is kind of almost like a eugenics hint here in the sense that the femme family like has not perpetuated itself because they are like you know they're they're not they they aren't propagating because they're all just basically so fucked that nature is curbing them off and that like where is the wealth going to go and what does that imply for the future of england if the wealth all lies with fucked up shut in weirdo pyromaniacs like this family are you interested in flame why Why, yes, yes, I am, rather. I've made a study of flame. Have you? Well, that must be very interesting. I know things about flames that nobody else in the world knows. Won't you tell me? I'd like very much to know. Why should I tell you? You wouldn't tell me who is in that cupboard? But I did tell you. Besides, you know it. It isn't fair to make me curious and then just not say anything. You'd like me to tell you all about fire, would you? Yes, I wish you would. Well, then, first of all, I've learned that flames are really knives. They're cold, my friend. Sharp and cold as snow. They burn like ice. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was... She really... The author of this particular book, which I will link in the show notes, she really only touches upon that very briefly, like, almost, like, I think, like, in a footnote. But I was like, let's explore that. There is this sense of, like, what does England or the world or or the post-war world or the Depression-era United States or whatever you want to take it, like, what does the world owe people who come from inauspicious, humble beginnings? Because so many of the characters in this movie are people who have come from nothing or who've kind of resigned themselves to nothing, um, like Melvin Douglas's character, who has survived the war with a lot of mental scars and who is basically kind of just PTSD ended up a little bit, you know, and he's basically just waiting to die. Mr. Penderall, I will give you a toast that you will not appreciate being young. I give you illusion. Illusion? I'm precisely the right age for that toast, Mr. Fame. Oh, I presume you are one of the gentlemen slightly, shall we say, battered by the war. Correct, Mr. Fame. War generation slightly soiled, a study in the bittersweet, the man with the twisted smile. And this, Mr. Fame, is exceedingly good gin. There is also, there's this, this note of maybe like impotence surrounding wealth in this movie and the idea that the young vitality and the virility is going to come from people at the fringes of society, like the Lillian Bond character and the Melvin Douglas character, who will be united, and from them is going to spring forth kind of this future, more egalitarian, like, race. It's it's really interesting. It's a very weird movie in terms of that. There's a lot of symbolism there at play, and I think you could definitely attribute that to Will's own, like, self-mythologizing as someone who came from, like, a shit-kicking background 
to pretending to be a well-off, wealthy young gent so that he can con other prisoners of war out of (laughs) what little funds they retain. So I was very disappointed by something in researching this episode. And that was, despite writing a whole ass autobiography, which includes many things I did not care about, (laughs) Melvin Douglas barely touches upon this movie. (laughs) But he does offer this limerick written by his co-star, Charles Lawton. And I don't know if this is written at the time or what, but it is Charles Lawton limerick. And it goes as follows. There once was a young fellow from Sparta who was known as an excellent farta. He could play with his ass, the Bach double bass, and also the well-known Takata. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, God. What a talent. (laughs) What a talent. (laughs) What a oh, talent. No. I'm very proud of okay. them. Uh, D has really, I think, very little to do in this movie compared to, like, I don't know, Ernest Thester, who's doing, like, all probably all the heavy lifting, really, when you look at it. But he still is just such an effective screen presence. I'm always just spellbound by him. And one thing that I thought was very interesting that I don't think we've talked about because there's been no reason for us to talk about is the origin of the D mustache. Mm. Um that was a specific idea that Goldwyn had. Of course. <laughs> Classic Goldwyn. Because he thought it would make him look more distinguished. And so Melly had to sit there while Goldwyn basically had people apply different kinds of mustaches, different shapes, different thickness, different color, etc. to his face with glue uh, for hours at a time, effectively. It's like the, the makeup scene in A Star is Born with yes, Jenny Gaynor, but yes. it's just fucking Melly D with the mustache. mustache. And then um, he was gonna, he got pulled over to, I want to say maybe Paramount, a different studio, and they wanted to shave off the stash, and he jokingly <laughs> was like, oh, Goldwyn picked the stash. He, he would kill me, blah, blah, blah. And then he realized that they took him seriously, and they were trying to cable Goldwyn like, across oh, no. the world, because Goldwyn was on a boat in like, the middle of the Atlantic. And they were like, what do we do about the stash? And he was like, the stash stays. <laughs> and Douglas was like, wow, I hate this business. <laughs> Oh, my God. So that didn't actually happen during the production of The Old Dark House, but it's a really good Melvin Douglas story that I thought we should discuss. Because when do we not want to be discussing Melvin Douglas? We always want to be discussing Melvin Douglas. Everybody loves Melly D. That would be a much better show than Everybody Loves Raymond. Let's just... (laughs) Yeah, Everybody Loves Melly D except for Richard Nixon. Uh, So there's a lot of interesting characters in this movie, both on screen and behind the scenes. And one really funny thing that I think everybody should know is, uh, are you guys familiar with Ernest Thesiger's hobby? I'm not. No, I'm not. His hobby was needlepoint. <laughs> oh, God. Just like tips. Shut Just up. Like tip. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I'm bringing this up. And his nickname for himself that he, he referred to himself on the set was the stitching bitch. <laughs> Fuck off. And I seem to recall... <laughs> I love him. I seem oh my God. to recall a story about him promoting Bride of Frankenstein in like New York. I think it was New York, London, Paris, something like that. And he brought with him a bunch of his needle points and he was trying <laughs> to auction them off in his hotel room while he was doing press. Oh my God. Oh my God. I love that. He is one of the most eccentric figures, I think, in, I don't know, the totality of film. That's so good. Wow. He's a weird, weird little dude. And one of the things I I love about him is his odd coloring. Everybody always talks about his like weird, like bird-like face and his weird bird-like freak body and all the other things about him. But I really like the fact that he always appears to have kind of like a little red nose. Like he's always got a little cold. He's always got a little baby cold, you know? Like, he's living in this big fucking shitty-ass house, drafty, 
miserable. Like he says, they generate their own electricity, but the house isn't very good at it. And he just seems like he's uniquely uncomfortable at all times. And so part of what makes that work is that it really like adds this whole other layer to scenes like have a potato because man, he's miserable. And he also is determined to make all these people miserable as well, even if they're only going to be here for a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, if I'm feeling bad, everyone needs to feel bad. You're all coming down with me. Exactly. And I, I respect that. I admire it. I understand it. Uh, who else is in this movie? Raymond Massey's in this movie. We don't care about Raymond Massey on this podcast. Nah. We don't. Especially because, again, not relevant to the old Dark House, but Raymond Massey was like part of that like arch-conservative clique in Hollywood. Richard Chamberlain recalled finding out when he worked with Raymond Massey on Dr. Kildare that Massey was part of this informal social club in Hollywood that had included uh, a couple other people, like uh, Ty Power comes to mind, that was called Fuck You, I Got Mine. Oh. Charming. Charming. Meaning they didn't want to pay taxes. They would have loved our show. They would have loved our show. Exactly. They would have loved Melly. I wonder how unpleasant all of their interactions were. Oh, God, were. true. Fucking hell. It's just like, instead of HUAC, they should have just been a fucking guillotine and take out all these assholes. But anyway, I guess America just never had priorities. I know. And someday, someday we will avenge Melvin Douglas with a guillotine. Just Robert Taylor's head just rolling through the streets. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, I guess it's probably good to mention that Melvin Douglas underwent effectively a long period of character assassination because of his affiliation with left-wing causes and also because his wife, Helen Gahagan Douglas, ran against Richard Nixon Famously, she coined the term Tricky Dick. He said that she was a commie. Melvin Douglas was pelted with a lot of anti-Semitism at this point in time, uh, not during the Old Dark House, but later on in his career. His father was Jewish. Douglas was not raised with Judaism, but his family was Jewish. And there were accusations that he was like, a, you know, a secret agent coming to undermine things when he and his wife went to Europe in the 1930s. Uh, a German envoy told Helen that she would be an excellent ambassador for Nazi Germany and then told her that she should really help them campaign against the Jews in America. You know, uh, they lived a, a very exciting life politically. And Melly definitely uh, suffered from the absolute batshit insanity that was the Red Scare. That's the real reason he had the mustache. It was his sneaky disguise. It was his sneaky disguise. I'm not, I'm Delvin Mugless. <laughs> Greetings, good man. Might I trouble you for a drink? Oh, get out of here, Homer. Homer? Who is Homer? My name is Guy Incognito. Oh my god, this man is my exact double. That dog has a puffy tail. Here, Puff. Here, Puff. So, you know, when we talk about the old dark house, it's kind of important to understand that the movie for a long time was considered lost, or if not lost, then completely inaccessible. It was pulled from circulation in the 1950s because of the remake, which I believe is a William Castle movie. And uh, it had been briefly re-released to British cinemas at the end of World War II because the censors didn't allow them to push through any new horror movies, I guess, because they didn't want to oppress people. I'm not really sure what the rationale was there. So Old Dark House was very briefly seen. I mean, is there really any logic in the censors? Especially not the British. 
Like, you couldn't buy The Exorcist in England until, like, what, like, 1999 or something? They banned the VHS tape. It's a video nasty. They lived with a real horror, which was Margaret Thatcher. So, I mean, they didn't need more. What is Reagan when you got real Reagan? Well, that's a really scary thought. I never really thought about that. How much scarier he is. <laughs> than Reagan in the film. Than OG Reagan. Really makes you think, yeah. Really makes you think. But what ended up happening eventually was through the efforts of people like Curtis Harrington, who the independent director who became a friend of Wales when he was a young filmmaker, they eventually managed to preserve the old dark house for future generations. And of course, when it was first seen, it became a, a very exciting moment for people. It, it had of kind of this this idea of having to satirize a genre as it was being created. It establishes the pattern of the old Dark House movie while also turning it on its head at the same time. And for that reason, like nothing ever really is as fresh as the old Dark House. Like they remade the movie a couple times. They tried. There are other old Dark House movies. Technically, it's preceded by something like The Cat and the Canary. But nothing will ever really match the exact tenor of something like the old Dark House. Yeah, it's a really ideal embodiment of the grace and humor of filmmaking in the early 1930s, which again is so specific to that point in time. I also read a very interesting idea that part of the reason why a movie like The Old Dark House could not be made later on was because by the 40s, genres had become very codified. So something couldn't be quite funny and scary at the same time. You know, there's right. not a, yeah. the, the whale movies exist, they kind of toe the line in a lot of different ways. They exist on a lot of different planes and they work on a lot of different planes in a way that's not going to be permitted later on the studio system when for marketing purposes, you need something to be what it is. And that's why a lot of unconventional movies start to slip through the cracks. Well, that's something like um the listeners aren't going to hear it for another two weeks, but we actually just recorded our episode on Night of the Hunter for November, And that's a movie that came out in 1955 and it's such a strange kind of blending of genres in a way that The Old Dark House, I think, also is. But it was really never given a chance. It was cut off at the knees and its massive failure basically ended the directing career of star of The Old Dark House, Charles Lawton. It's a very hard movie to like pinpoint what it is. They both are. Yeah, I think it's a problem that's played the film industry since its inception that a lot of studios especially seem to want to be safe in literally Mm -hmm. every sense of the word whether it's to align with conservative values or whether it's to stay safe in the form of genre I think that it is quite limiting to uh, creative expression obviously and to uh, furthering film as a like a medium um and it's just always play like it, i mean it makes sense everyone wants to play it safe everyone wants a sure thing a sure bet they want to make money on the these films that they're producing on no money but it then limits the quality of the output and it's like the real advances in film that we've had have generally come from people trying to take risks and try new things, break down the barriers between genre. Like that's why in the 60s with the breakdown of the code, you see an explosion of different kinds of genre, like, you know, blending back into one another and you see the creation of a whole new kind of film. We're sort of slipping back into that safe filmmaking with these blockbusters it's the same thing that was happening like they 
go with superheroes because they're sure bet they're gonna make money. And people find comfort in like categories too, right? And like things that neatly fit their expectations. And, you know, you just want to go see a, a superhero movie and people are uncomfortable and unsettled with something like The Night of the Hunter. You know, it's they don't know what to make of it. And that freaks people out, I think. Yeah, I think like people go into things and they want to know what's going to happen. And when things don't happen the way that they expect, they they reject it. And I think what's interesting with The Old Dark House is that it plays on genre so beautifully and then it crafted this kind of legacy of horror that, like, has impacted horror since the day it came out. Like, the mystique that surrounded it when it was still considered lost did still impact film that came after it. It just exists in this wonderful, like, wildly weird, dark, shadowy little place. But it's so absurd. It's just, it's just delightful as a, as a feature. Whereas something else, another horror film that would have came out at the time that followed a formula just doesn't have that longevity and just doesn't have the same kind of impact on horror that The Old Dark House would. Contemporary reviews were mostly positive. Some moviegoers were very confused, obviously, by a lot of the subtext in this movie. Uh, one key contemporary review that I've cited comes from Dr. Cora Hasselberg, who is a pioneering female pathologist at Washington University in St. Louis, who saw The Old Dark House upon its initial release and described it in her diary as very interesting, Melvin too fat. <laughs> That's Melvin Douglas's aunt. And when she died, he got her diaries. Oh, no. And she would go to all of his movies and comment on what he looked like. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he's not even not even large in this movie. Well, I mean, you know, it's personal for her. <laughs> the family honor is on the line. I I love this movie. I think it's such a weird little oddity for all the reasons that have already been outlined and I mean, that set, those sets, I guess, the titular old dark house are incredible. And the way they're filmed, just the shadows. And obviously, we already talked about how Gloria Stewart's white gown is like this really stark contrast with it. But really, you, it's, it's kind of all of them. It's like the occupants of the house fade into those shadows, the way they're costumed, the way they carry themselves. And then you have this like infusion of like younger people coming in. You know, I think of like Lillian Bond's entrance. She's She just comes in and the camera just like, it loves her, right? She's just like, she's this burst of like energy in this house. Oh, what a night! I thought you were never going to open that door. Bye. <laughs> there must have been a reservoir bust or something. <laughs> Anyhow, before we knew where we were, something had fallen down and smashed the car in. <laughs> it's a wonder it didn't smash us. <laughs> You know, they're not supposed to be there. You can, it, you just feel it. It's, I don't know, it's, I, I don't want to say, like, the, the house is as much a character as anyone else or whatever, but it kind of is, right? Like, it's just, it's so good. It's a great movie. It's, it's just got that mood. It's so creepy. It's so funny. It's very sarcastic. What are you stopping for? I'm stopping for a rest. Really, Philip, you can't stop here. For pity's sake, either go on or go back. You can't expect me to spend the night like a half-brown rat on a mountainside. It's better to stop and drive the car gently over a cliff, isn't it? Well, it won't help things, losing your temper. I've never been in a better temper in my life. I love driving a hundred miles through the dark, practically without headlights. I love the trickle of ice-cold water pouring down my neck. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. I think my favourite thing about it is that you can see the indelible mark that it's left on horror and certain thematic devices in horror. And I think if you watch a modern horror and then go back and watch The Old Dark House, you can see the footprint 
that it has had. The titular old dark house, like any haunted house movie, would take cues from the old dark house, even down to young people being the target of this horror and then older people being this, like, the horror and, like, <laughs> religious fanaticism and Karloff's character even being sort of the mute brute who comes out and it's, like, you can see it in horror, like, where it went from that point. Yeah, he's like a proto-lurch. Yeah, mm-hmm. all those little bits and pieces, they're just, when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, that's where that's from. It just, it helps telegraph that story so beautifully. It's like everything encapsulated in one film. <laughs> Those lights, they gave me quite a start. I suppose it's a storm. On the contrary, we make our own electric light here, and we are not very good at it. Pray don't be alarmed if they go out altogether. So if James Whale is the definitive horror director of the 1930s, why did he not helm Universal or any other studio's further forays into the genre? Why did he vanish entirely? Well, to put it succinctly, Whale got himself into really hot water in 1937 with the All Quiet on the Western Front sequel The Road Back, a movie that was unequivocally anti-Nazi. There had been a coup behind the boardroom door at Universal, and the Lemleys were out. With them, Whale lost his greatest champions. And after threat of a German boycott, The Road Back was recut with additional scenes added to temper its virulent anti-fascism, and as such, Whale's magical reign at Universal was over. By 1940, so was his Hollywood career. Director Robert Aldrich, who got to know Whale after he left the screen, insisted that it was Whale's unapologetic homosexuality that did him in. Screenwriter Gavin Lambert, who perhaps might not have agreed with Aldrich on that point, did say that Whale's willingness to be seen out and about with his partner, David Lewis, earned the ire of more circumspect gay men like George Cukor, and by extension, the heterosexual Hollywood power structure. In my opinion, it was probably a mix of studio politics, the ingrained contempt Hollywood has for anyone who's hit on hard times after a string of successes, a touch of homophobia, and the fact that Whale was accustomed to, and almost definitely expected, an indulgent, hands-off approach like like the Lemleys, that rendered him persona non grata following the calamity that was the road back. Whatever it was, his absence was striking. Gloria Stewart, who had moved to England, returned to Hollywood a few years later and was astonished to find that the ace of Universal had been bum-rushed out of town. For his part, Ian McKellen, who played Whale in the 1998 biopic Gods and Monsters, thought the hand-wringing was overblown. He detected Whale's irrepressible humor in those god-awful final films, saying, quote, isn't it green hell where you have George Sanders and Vincent Price in the middle of the jungle in very tight-fitting military outfits, rather perky hats, shaved and coiffured, with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who's not gay, but is very cute? Does it not look like three queens on safari getting away from it all? There must have been a lot of laughing on that set. I like McKellen's take myself. Val Luton endeavored to keep the strange and eerie alive in his own work at RKO in the 40s, but the studio system never again produced a horror auteur with such exquisite taste, such a bewitching sense of humor, and such a zeal for what we might call a gothic modernity or like an art deco movie macabre. Whale, like all great filmmakers, stood alone in the old dark house as a singular expression of his genius. Its survival, which was by no means assured, considering that Universal thought that they had, you know, destroyed the fucking negative, is a blessing. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the old dark house. And I am very proud of it. I'm very proud of Jimmy. I'm very proud of Melly. I am not proud of Raymond Massey, but who is? And Canada should be ashamed for producing him. So, you know, that's it. Uh, happy Halloween, I guess. Come back next week for Original Primble. Original Primble, the Anne Southern and Gene Raymond story.
Yeah, we've got a bonus episode on Anne Southern and Jude Raymond that we will be uploading next week. And then after that, we're diving into our November series for the rest of November. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Write and review us on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to us on everywhere, um, kind of, you know, whatever platform. Follow us on Twitter at BasketPod, and it's the same on Instagram, I believe. Yes. Um, and yeah, tell us what you think because we'd really love to know. Please interact with us. We want to hear, unless it's mean. Don't tell us. If don't it's tell mean. us that. We don't. Tell we me don't I'm good. Me. Did you Did you think that was good? Tell me I'm good. Tell me it was good. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. Tell me that was good. Tell me I'm 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 good. Thank you. Okay. All right. All right. Happy Halloween. Bye bye. Happy Halloween. Look, I am literally Eminem in Eight Mile in this whole episode, so <laughs> just gonna have to do some very some real hacksaw editing on this one. May Clark obviously is not in this movie, but May Clark was a frequent Frankenstein. Uh, that's not the name of James Well. I'm gonna start that sentence over again. Do 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 do. Well, I'm gonna just say Tiff can put in maybe some sexy little bit here. All right, put in the quote or something, a little bit of audio. So um, <laughs> the casting of this movie was interesting. <laughs> it's like you forget how editing works. She'll just remove that pause. It's not a problem. <laughs> big, big knife thing and shit. He's, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. The big, big knife thing. <laughs> I don't know what those are called. I don't know what that was, but, you know. Like I know. I don't know anything about weaponry. All I know <laughs> about is pistols and sawed-off shotguns and other such American armory. And that's where you put in a joke about the spider that one time that I threatened to kill with a gun. <laughs>